Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Podcast. So, super excited for today's episode with Mark Fennell. So, before I go into any of the episode, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who has shared, to listen, downloaded, whatever it may be with the podcast. It does mean a lot, so please, 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 please continue to do so. Uh, the more you share this, the more people who listen to it, the bigger, the better the guests, and the increased awareness of the the, the, the no-nonsense uh, evidence approach to the side of things that we can kind of go through. So today I talk about with Mark Fennell, who is a personal development, personal and business development coach. And we go through his story through the low times and where he's at now. We talk about how we overcame that and the, the tools he has in his arsenal. Can we talk about the importance of being present? We talk about imposter syndrome. We talk about, like we went off on tangents. We went off about, talked about Viktor Frankl and some of our favorite books and the lessons we've learned. We talk about it takes as long as it takes. And uh, we talk about values. We talk about importance of separating the head and the heart. We talked about ego. We talk about jobs. We talk about finding your lane, focusing on what you have. And then the one beautiful sentiment in it is, does your life make you smile? So I'm really, really lucky and very, very fortunate to have Mark on. Mark does incredible work um, as a life coach and a business development coach as well. So if you enjoyed the episode, all I ask you is to review it, to share it, to tag us in your story. And if it has impacted you, please do send a DM. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with Mark Fennell. Mark, how are we, sir? I'm very well. And listen, Shane, thanks so much for having me. Uh, always great to have a chat uh, about all good things that hopefully will help somebody somewhere. So I'm very well. And thanks for having me. My pleasure. Like, I think we were chatting off air. We could have literally just chatted all day and forget to press record. I think that tends to happen the last little while. So <laughs> Mark, whoever isn't aware of what you do and how you got into your field, can you let the audience know who you are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will give you the uh, long story short, as I say. Um so basically, I would have got involved with charities when I was much younger as a volunteer, just dragged along by my parents. Actually, they were involved and they would have brought us along to help. And it was working with um, teenagers, young adults in the city center and stuff. People have had a, a tough a tough background and, you know, we're just looking for a break in life. And so as my parents would have been helped there and brought us along to help do little jobs. Um, I kind of fell in love with it when I started to see how much they, I suppose, started to, to, to grow within themselves and how they, their life changed. And when I say life changed, I mean, they would start, people who they would barely come at first and then they start showing up all the time. Then they would want to be on more. And what I got to see was as a, even just like in a, as I was a teenager, as a, at that, that time, I just remember seeing going, they really appreciate what's happening here. It must be of value. And, you know, in a teenage head, that's why I said, they really want to come. This is cool. I want to be here. And I got to know them. And then they used to kind of have a lot of respect for my parents and different things. And I got to connect with them and I could see that, you know, they were starting to believe in themselves and they were starting to do stuff. And like, as in, you know, things that they would have never dreamt of doing um, within themselves confidence wise and stuff like that. And so fast forward a few years, I got to connect with them and I ended up kind of become coaching them myself, so to speak. Um, again, it was all voluntarily. And I got to connect with a few of them. Um, sadly, not all of them survived past, you know, the age of 21 or whatever. And one guy stuck out into, particularly, he says, you know, I said, what do you want in your life? And where, where are you going? What's your plans? You know, 
kind of like a what's your dreams and aspirations kind of chat, but just a bit of a chat, like what's your plan, you know, uh, long term, because he wasn't going to college or anything like that. And he said, well, if I survive past 21, I got more than my brother got because his brother sadly passed away. He's 21. And that struck me. And I realized the background they came from was different to mine. And I just kind of said the reward I got from just being a part of something that helps people. That's the, that's the be all end all was just such a reward. I just wanted to do it and do it and do it. So then went study, got credentials, whatever else have you uh, qualified. And then um, years, fast forward years later, I was walking into a rugby match and a guy go, Mark Fennell, is that you? And it was one of the guys that would have been in the, one of the gangs. And he said, he was very, he was thanking me, you know, you helped change my life and blah, blah. And I said, well, no, you took action and all I said, but you put it into, implemented it. And he said, I moved out of that area. And he was talking about some of them had died or suicide or drugs or whatever. But he said, I got out there. I got my own job. I'm working in security now. He actually was head of security at the time. Um, I'm I'm married, I've kids. And, and he says, uh, I, I wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for for uh, the coaching that you guys did. And that just dropped inside of me. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to do this for the rest of my life because I'll never forget the feeling that did. To be, uh, I can't take credit for whatever anyone's ever done, but to be a part of that is so rewarding. There's nothing else. It's a sense of purpose, a sense of fulfillment. That's how I got into it. And I've been doing it now. I mean, best part of 20 years, but 15 years um, qualified full-time, so to speak. So, um, yeah, that's how I actually got into it. And then it started working with people in the business coaching arena first, because exec coaching was kind of where I went in. I said, I'm going to be in business because I was always entrepreneurial. And that was kind of where I started. But when I eventually one time had what they would call a nervous breakdown, they wanted to put me on medication and so forth. And basically, if people say, what was the root cause of it? I was burning the candle at both ends. Um, I was loving what I was doing, but I didn't have balance. And I got to travel and different things. And I collapsed one morning in the gym and rushed to A&E. They thought it was a heart attack. And I'm like, I'm in my twenties, heart attack. This can't be right. And they, they put the fear of God in me. Anxiety got in, fear got in, real health anxiety, like every little kind of sensation. I just came hypersensitive to. Um, I had chronic anxiety, lost two stone in weight, couldn't eat, didn't want to go out, didn't want to do anything. The only thing I could continue with doing was actually my coaching. Because when I got into coaching, it wasn't about me. It was about the person I was helping. And it was like the ultimate distraction. Yeah. So the only thing I could continue to do was coaching. But outside of that, I was a shell. And I can't, and that, that's not even, that's even an underest. Uh, I can relate to what you said. Uh, listen, I was a shell, right? Like broken. Yeah. 10, 10 ways. They want to put me on medication and I'm, I'm not against medication, but I just didn't want to go on medication. They wanted me to send me to therapy and counseling. Um, Maybe I should have gone on it. Again, I'm a big supporter of obviously therapy and so forth, but I didn't because the coach in me said, if I can try and sort this out, how strong will I be if I can? And so what I did while they said, right, I'm going to go all in on A. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is to blame for this because he says, don't have a plan B, right? Because he says, when you have a plan B, you're not all in on A. And, and that was a thing I heard at the time. I said, my plan A for me is I'm going all on, in on this. And I remember, you know, crying out to God. I'm like, please, God, help me. Because, like, you know, when your back's against the wall, you know where to turn, you just look up. That's what I did. I said, please, God, help me. And, you know, I learned so much about myself, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all of this. And it took me two years. And I said, I'm going to go all in on A. And I said, if I can't get through this and I am 
back to square one or whatever else. Well, then I'll reach out for help, but I'm going to go all in on me and just give it the all. And I had chronic anxiety, anxiety attacks, and I would persevere through them. Now, I'm sure if I had to spoke with someone or whatever, I got therapy, I probably could have fast tracked it. But weirdly enough, I'm, I, I'm so, it was a horrible thing, but I'm so glad of it now because it changed my life for the better forever. And what it taught me then, I've just been re- gurgitating to people for the last 15 years. And um, that's how I got into the personal side of coaching as well as business coaching, which is unusual because sometimes coaches are either one or the other, but I actually cross over in both now. Um, And from that, um, I got into the coaching all in because I realized that, you know, your thoughts, who you are, your mindset, your inner narrative, inner critic, um, sensations in your body, your thought, you're going to think things you don't want to think. You're going to, not want to do what you know you want to do. You're going to things that you love have just no desire for. And and I've, I went through all of those things and anyone who's been in a dark place know what I'm talking about. You lose, the, the, there is no life in living. Yeah. It's just living, it's existing. Anyway, long story short, two years, give or take, I got through it. And I was only talking to my wife yesterday, we were only chatting about this. And I remember one time um, I was walking through a uh, forest, you know, and I look, nature is a great thing, but I was walking through and I'm not a tree hugger now or like that, but I do think nature has got some, some definite essence that we need. Outdoors is super. Walking through a tree one time and I was like, I was noticing the birds. I was like, oh, they're all so noisy. And I was like, it's cool. And the trees and the smells. And it's like, I've walked this walk so many times with anxiety. And this is the first day I walked it without anxiety and how much I just it was like my goggles, my anxiety goggles were off. I wasn't preoccupied with my body or my anxiety or me. I was actually now, Supposed so being present and ad, uh, naturally just became aware. And it was like a new, it was like a reawakening. And it was from that moment on, then it was kind of, that was it. You know, life took on a whole new limit. So I have a huge, I believe a healthy perspective in life because, because of that. And of course we've had knocks and things and difference, uh, you know, since then. But I, I learned that if you can get up in the morning and just, and it sounds kind of like cheesy now, but I'm going to say, if you can get up in the morning and you're alive, Chief, that's halfway. That's enough to be thankful for. Because, you know, if you can still smile, I, my smile was gone for a long time. And so it's something I kind of value, you know, immensely. Anyway, that's that was kind of my brief story. I will say the one thing people say, why, Mark, did you not get help or do the thing? When I was in the hospital, and it's a funny story. Well, I tell you, okay, I'll tell you real quick. It's a funny story, right? I don't want to keep you here all night, Shane. Right? I <laughs> but here's what I'm, I'm in the hospital. Uh, they thought I collapsed. Well, I collapsed in the gym. They think it's heart attack. I'm, lit, I'm lying in the bed. And my wife comes in to me and sees me with all the machines hooked up to me. And she hates hospitals. She starts to faint. And I start getting like, it's okay. And she starts falling against the bed. And the bed starts is on wheels because it's in the A&E. It starts yeah. pushing away from the machine. The things start popping up me. So the alarm starts going off. And I'm catching on to her. And I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? What's that? And I'm, and I'm just all kind of looking after her. And the nurses run in. They take her away. And she's fine. She was just fainting. Um, but what after that, I was realizing that I wasn't thinking about me or my anxiety when someone I love needed me, even though it was only for that couple of minutes. And I was holding her up saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, I, I, the anxious me was gone. It was like survival or whatever. And I realized, well, if I can get a break in anxiety like that moment, I just need to look on expanding, not having anxiety and those little breaks, just get, make those breaks a little bit bigger. And please God, hopefully over time, the anxiety will eventually be overcome. And it was based off that when I saw that it is possible to not be anxious all the time. And that's all I took. I just worked off that and 
that's how I eventually got over over anxiety. And no, I don't suffer from anxiety today and haven't done. Do I get normal anxiety, like nerves and anxiousness and this and that, whatever, normal stuff? Does it keep me up at night or stop me eating food? No. Yeah, I think there is a fine balance between the two because I think there's a, there's a lot of people who are have struggled an awful lot during the lockdowns with anxiety and stuff like Usually. that. Hugely, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I think I don't think people understand the seriousness of it. I think I think I was listening to something or heard something or read something recently that someone made a very flippant comment on anxiety that it isn't a real thing, and the amount of hate and slate they got afterwards. Like oh. I, no, I'm not for cancel culture at all, mm. but I, I I don't think people who haven't had those lows can really this understand is it. it unless you've had it like to the level I had it or, you know, like where it's impacting your life, like actual impacts, like on, not just daily or weekly, but it's like an ongoing thing until you've experienced that you, you don't know it. You've had normal anxiety, but you've not experienced the horrible um, sensations, but more for me, it wasn't even a battle of the body. It was more the battlefield was my mind and the thoughts. And I mean, when I had it, like it was because such a long time ago, I had to look up what is anxiety? What does it mean? What's the definition of anxiety? It wasn't really a, a thing term we used back then. And it wasn't a thing really talked about usually back then. And then irrational thoughts and like, you know, the what ifs and believing the what ifs as if they're fact and being worked up and, you know, trying to control your thoughts, which is not an easy thing to do. But I remember uh, as, as I helped anyone, you know, who may be struggling with irrational thoughts. Um, I remember reading, it was, it was a book, I think it was called a happiness hypothesis. I think it's called anyway. And the book is about how our brain will show us what we don't want to think about. If I say, you've heard the story, like don't think of the elephant, yeah. but you see an elephant because our brain works by showing us, even though whether we want to think it or not think about it, it still shows the same image. And so by trying to fight away, don't think anxious thoughts, don't think anxious thoughts, your brain's going, don't think this, don't think that, you know, it doesn't work. And, and that was a big eye opener for me. And I realized, stop fighting with your thoughts, your thought, your brain's a computer, but separate your head from your heart. I don't mean the physical. I, that's how I did it. My heart was like me, my conscious, what I know is right and what I know I want. And then my head was just like a computer. It'll just process whatever it's subconsciously thinking on or whatever it's being fed through, you know, my eyes or my ears. It's a computer. And I had to say, you know, just because I think it doesn't mean it's true. And just because I thought it doesn't mean it's coming from me. And that was a big thing for me. That is a big thing. And I think one of the things that kind of we work with clients on is like the fact of the opinion. So actually, if you write it out and actually break up the column page column on the left side, actually write it as an actual fact or thought or as an actual opinion. You know, most people, I'd say 100% of people have read 99% of it actually ends up opinion. And it's yeah. like, well, where is this stem from? Where is this coming from? Is it based off what you think other people are thinking? Is it based off what something has been said to you in the past or whatever it is? And, and like this all has a massive impact on people's eating habits, on mm. why they do certain things. And that's why we go into that level with people. And But when people actually use that tool and who are, I think a lot of people have that fear of like opening that can of worms. And that's the hardest people for, for it's it's that it's that reluctance to let that wall go down. Because like if that's the story you've held on to for so long and you've let go of that story, you don't know what's going to be released, but you're also potentially losing some element of the identity that you've created or that story around you that's protecting you, but it's actually yeah. not protecting you. So it's kind of a little bit ironic in a way. Yeah, it is. And very what we when I'm coming at it from coaching someone, obviously with their, I don't do coaching you do now, I, I'm the head coach more so mindset stuff. Um, 
but what I, when I come at it, it's beliefs and values is how we yeah. kind of talk about it. And very much so when things are stripped back, what you do you truly believe? You see, sometimes we have what we want to believe, but what we really believe is quite different. Um, you know, and, and I, I've seen that with clients many a time. And, and sadly, we don't always want to go there. We always think, oh, we're getting too deep now, you know, but, you know, and we get that vibe, but sometimes you got to get deep, you know, you got to go into it. And it's not complex though. Deep doesn't mean complex. Deep just means what's the real answer. Who are the, what's the real you think here? And if the real you thinks you're not enough, well, the real you then needs to be, uh, should we say, we need to edit that and change that narrative. Because sometimes when you get down, talk about a fear, someone has a fear of, you know, um, I have a fear of when I go into the canteen, someone might have, or I have a fear of public speaking or whatever else. And and a lot of the time, the fear will come down to, I just fear being seen as inadequate yeah. and not enough and not good. And almost like imposter syndrome, which is 70% of the working force, workforce and feeling like oh, I'm going to be caught out here. And that's ultimately the fear. It's not the actual speaking. It's what if I mess up and I look like a fool and I don't look like I'm adequate for the job that I'm doing. And that's more often the thing. And that's how I will always go to what we believe is one thing, but what is the real fear underneath it all? I think that's the, should we say, the bone of contention one must look at. And sometimes you got to go a little bit deep on that thing. But you know what? These roots are do go deep. It's like I always say, your belief sometimes is like a tree. It doesn't, you can't really change them all the time. But it's like you can't just like a potted plant, you pick up a pot and move it. A belief is like a tree with roots. And you sometimes got to go deep if you want to move that tree. You know? always have, did you ever, have you ever heard of the interview with Johnny Wilkinson on the High Performance Podcast? No. So like to talk about next level deep, listen to that or watch that. I will. Um, you need, I will. I need to hunt that down. I will. Def- that's all. Like, I'm all over that. If he talks about the tree, he oh, talks good. about okay. that things go down to the root deep. In order to move a tree, you must reroot it and uplift it and bring it back in. And your thoughts are like that. They all have roots to them. They all stem from somewhere. And it's important to look at where they're going because Very good. your negative thoughts, roots look for water and that's how they grow and that's how they spread. Negative thoughts are looking for the negativity to grow and to spread. So it's yeah. about addressing the actual issue first and where it's stemming from. And to hear, because he he compares like this is this is a complete t- tangent, but he compares kicking that World Cup winning goal to doing the washing up. All right, it's the process. <laughs> okay, it's focusing on the process. He's kicked that ball so many times in training. It's a simple process for him. It's repetitive in his head all mm-hmm. the time, all the time, all the time, and he was just being present. That's Very, a big thing. Uh, you know what? I, I'm, I, I really want to, I'm intrigued to hear that interview. Um, but I, I would have looked at it from, I suppose, the neuroscience perspective on it, the neuroplasticity of thoughts and how the yeah. brain works and how you can rewire your brain. And there's literally a biological change when we do that, you know, and, but from his perspective, what you're talking about, the sports psychology side of things, I suppose, is the muscle memory that, you know, if, if I can act without thinking, I will be so much more efficient, less energy, less time and less delay. And I suppose from a boxer, that's paramount, you know, um, and I think it's, it's, it's our beliefs sometimes work like that, though, if they're negative or if, if it's, uh, should we say, a, a, not a constructive mindset around something. For example, you're thinking I'm not enough all the time. That has become hard and fast, yeah. literally in your brain. To reroute that is going to take some work, but you got to go deep on it. Where the, you don't always necessarily find out where it came from, but you got to say, well, do I want to believe this? And sometimes when you ask that people that question, you go, well, of course I don't. And then you go, so so why do you believe it? And that's sometimes coming at it from that perspective. They go, well, you know what? That's interesting. Probably because, and you'll always find it with something in school or a parent or someone. Normally trauma or some grief somewhere. You'll find something. Yeah. Yeah. Or a teacher who they respected said, 
you're, you know, whatever, you're not as good as everyone else or whatever. You'll always find something when we were at a very influential time in our lives, it was said to us and it stuck. And then it be, again, it was a, a little seed planted that grows into this oak tree in our head and it doesn't change overnight. And I think anyone who's listening, who's struggling to change a belief about themselves or whatever, and, and like everyone would say, whether it be in fitness or whether it be in mental health or whatever it might be, nothing is an overnight change. And if someone promises you that, they're definitely lying. But everything is a process. I always say to someone, if you don't like the result, you look at the process and you go, what can I do to get to change the result that I do want? and give it the time. And the first question people ask me when I work with them or help them out with anxiety or depression or self-belief, and how long does it normally take people to get better or whatever else? And I will never give an answer because I said, it can be as long or as short, but it's whatever your pace is, that's the pace it's going to be. Do not compare. We love to do that. You know, oh, is it normal average six months? Is it how many sessions would it be? Listen, I have clients with me since uh, I think the, the client I had with me the longest is like 11 years or some 11, 12 years, right? Uh, and th- they will go through stuff and whatever over the 11 years. But then I have clients who do only a handful of sessions and that's probably enough, you know? Yeah. It's down to what, how deep is that root? And I put it this way, how how much effort are you going to give it? Are you prepared to give it the effort if you're still not there in nine months? And if you're going to say, well, I'm going all in on this plan A, well, that was, that was me. It took two years. <laughs> But it, I I can relate to what you said about like when clients come to to me for like weight loss or whatever maybe it's like well give me a deadline or when's it going to be done it's like how long has it taken to get to where we are right now how long has it taken for you to build up the courage which it is yeah. to actually reach out and to reach out for help like that's that's the that's the first and it's it's about what you said as well which is focusing on the process mm-hmm. a lot of people just want the six pack or whatever it is but they don't realize. That takes an awful lot of restraint. It takes a lot of determination. I don't think most people will be happy with six packs anyway. I think it's a genetic factor. It's a massive thing. We all have six packs somewhere, but a lot of people, when they get it, I'm talking from experiences, it's not going to make you any better. It just made me very hungry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it made me look like I should be on a trucker box. It didn't. Do, make- do you know, um, here's what I'm going to say. Um, when it comes down to something like giving up smoking even. Yeah. They say that one of the worst things to do is count how many days you're off the cigarettes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it's kind of like clocking in an accolade. And the downside of that is it's like, well, I got to a hundred days now and whatever. They say that people who count the days are more likely to go back on the cigarettes. The person who says, I'm giving up smoking, done, like actual done and doesn't count days or nothing, just says, I may, I'm, they're done. They have a higher chance of giving up smoking than the person's right day two, day three, day four, because by counting the days, you're keeping it ever present in your mind. And they say it actually works against you, even though it feels like you're achieving something. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting take on things. But I will say I, I learned very much that from um, General Jim Stocksdale, right? He was a prisoner of war. And he said they asked him who survived. He was in prison for years with the Viet Cong. And they asked him who survived and who didn't. What was the difference? He said the optimists did not survive. And in a nutshell, he said, because they put a date on things. Oh, we'll be out by Christmas. Just got to stay here and stay strong until Christmas. We'll be out by Easter. And he said, Christmas would come and go and their spirits would be broken. Easter would come and go and their spirits would be broken. He said, the real, op- the, the realistic optimists, he said, which he called himself one, he says, I'll get out someday, but I don't know when. It'll just take as long as it takes. He said, and that was the attitude. Don't put clocks and times on things. You got to just say, I'm here for as long as it takes. That I think that's the way we need to be with for trying to make some change. Just it takes as long as it takes. Don't put no clock on it. <laughs> it's interesting what you spoke about there, kind of prisons of war and stuff. But like, have you have you read Victor Frankel? 
I am an advocate of Victor Frankl, man's search for meaning. Listen, yeah. logotherapy, come on. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So in that, they kind of say you need to have a why in order to get three things. Yeah. He found the people who survived were like those who had that survived. He could actually pinpoint where people were yeah. going to, which is quite scary, a little bit morbid, um, that he yeah. could pinpoint where people were going to like unfortunately pass away or whatever it may be in the concentration camps. If you haven't read that book, it's 150 pages. Um, I've, I've read it multiple times and I've read other stuff and writings and all sorts. Of, yeah, I've done a lot of- 30 books? Huh? You used to buy 30 books? Loads of books. <laughs> There's loads uh, of books. Like, my Kindle. Yeah, so yeah, like man search for meaning, and then yes to life is also a very good read. It's a really well. good one. It's a really good uh, one. He he has some interesting studies online as well. They've kind of published some of his papers. Um, what was interesting was though, um, no matter what people can do, I can't remember the exact quote, but no matter what people do, they can never take your ability to choose. They can never take ability your choice away. So you could be shackled and tortured or whatever it might be, but you can always choose. You know how what you'll think about and what you'll do next and whether you give up or not. And he said, it's really chronically hard, but if you, you, that you, if you just remind yourself that no matter what happens, my body, no matter what happens or my surroundings, I always have an ability to choose hope. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a Victor Frankl thing, but it's a powerful thing to, when you say, you know, people can take away everything from you, but they can never take away your, your freedom to hope. And I think that's a powerful, powerful lesson. I got that from him big stuff. Like we're going completely off tangent where we have. We um, are, but listen, it's good. Well, chat, I think this is the best way to do it, to be honest with you. And I, Absolutely. What you've spoken about there in relation to kind of having that, that, that kind of mental drive. Do you believe that kind of the element of resilience and stuff is inherent to the individual or is it something that can be learned? Um, I think my honest answer to you is this, because I read Victor Frankl at a time when I needed to read him. And for me, it was, always saying no matter what happens i'm just going to hope that i will get better at some point and holding on to the hope and this and this is what's funny it wasn't that i was mentally strong going into what i did because if i was if i may we wouldn't happen i wasn't right i wasn't even like what was it that got me through what i went through my darkest kind of time the resilience grew the more i kind of doubled down on holding on to hope um and not this false, positive, toxic positivity stuff that's out there, you know, just be, you know, like affirmations are great and all that, but it didn't work for me so much. Right. But I had to kind of fall into it. They work, but they didn't, there was a lot more ingredients to getting through than just that. I had to kind of fall in on hope and say, nope, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get, I'm going to go through this and I hope for a better day. And I hope for just being 1% better next month or whatever. I didn't use those, that terminology at the time, but I remember just going, if I can just hope that I'll get one day free of anxiety next month or whatever, or hope and just hope. And I, the more I doubled in on hope and got into that mindset of hope, living in hope, which sounds interesting, I got more resilient towards the anxiety, which is strange because I wasn't letting the anxiety take a foot anymore. I was going, no, I'm going to get through this. No, nope, I am getting through this. I've made progress. I'll make more progress. It takes as long as it takes. There is no plan B. I'm all in on A. I'm all in. This is going to work. And it, that's how my resilience grew through in building up my faith in, you know, that I'll get through this. Um, and, I, and I remember saying, you know, please, God, get me through this. You know, God, I know you're up there. Get me through this. And, and I, spiritual awakening, if you want to call it. But I remember just going all in on hope. And that's ultimately how I got through it. And that built my resilience at the same time. Because no, I'm not entertaining that narrative. I'm not falling into that trap. The what ifs would come. And I just got better at being self-aware 
and I got better at going, these are just thoughts. I'm not afraid of them. This is anxiety, sensations in my body. I don't fear it. It can't kill me. It can't control, like what Victor Hankel would say, it can't take away my choice to choose what I do next. It's a massive, chronic, like a joint influence of trying to make you, you know, stay at home, whether it be social anxiety or go out or whatever. It's it a massive, powerful force, this anxiety. But I said, you know what? You can't make me no matter how horrible I feel. I'm going to choose to go out for that meal, even if I don't eat anything. I'm going to choose to go here, even if I don't want to go, but I'm going to go anyway. I know it's the right thing to do. And even though it's a huge influence, anxiety and fear and, and, and you know, all depressive thoughts and so forth and the irrational thoughts, they're a massive influence. I was able to separate all of that and go, no, this is what I need to do. And this is what I choose to do. And I know I'll get through this. And I just, I got just self-aware and I became my own coach. And it was, I didn't have a plan with this work. This was not like, I had some evidence-based stuff that I'd been, like, I was literally doubled down on psychology. Like, I literally went all in. Um, I probably, I always say, I probably did a degree in about six months, I'd say, the equivalent. But I was reading constantly and learning constantly. And I learned that it's quite um, a simple thing, but it's the hardest thing to do is, is, is to get through it. But holding on to hope was, was a big thing for me. And that's how my resilience grew. I hope that answers your question. It does. Uh, when you said that you were kind of like going through the research when you're in that kind of like mm. headspace, how did you decipher what was bullshit and yeah, what was actual proper? I'm not, not even going to say I have evidence based because evidence based changes every two seconds. Mm. Um, how did you decipher like what's bullshit and what's actual proper information? Yeah. Do you know what? This is where the coach came out with me, I suppose. Um, I have always been teaching and always been, you know, doing talks and different things. I think that definitely helped me in decipher what was just Codswallop and what actually was legit. And here's what I'm going to say. I looked at people who had been tried and tested as far as, you know, their contributions were recognized. Um, and I said, right, I'll go. And I, and I used to read it. I gave everything a chance. And I would say, I'm just going to take the meat and leave the bones. Take what I think is relevant for me and leave the bones. And thankfully, with my coaching and how working with people, I've always been able to be quite discerning as in what how to get the real answer out of a person or how to kind of connect with that person or what the real issues for them. And I used to make this conscious effort of separating me as if I'm as if I'm talking to myself, right? But as if I was talking to a client. And I would look and read stuff and say, right, for example. Um, I read a girl, uh, uh, you know what? Actually, I have the book somewhere. Uh, anyway, there's a book, I have it. And she wrote about nervous breakdowns. Um, I can't remember her name. Um, it's an old, old book. And I read that book and I said, right, let me read this. And can I relate to what she talks about? And then I looked at the stories and these were basically real case studies. Um, people who were like literally, and I could start to identify me, the client in, in this. And I was like, yeah, that, that was me. That was me. That was me. That was me. And then she was to talk about how, um, what strategies worked for each client and different clients and so forth. So it was like, a, not the most interesting read, but for someone who's in the middle of it, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. like a lifeline. And I remember identifying going, I'll take that. That'll work. I'm going to try this. Yeah, that makes sense. That lines up. Like I always find there's patterns and there's trends. You'll see consistencies in certain information. Other stuff is just theoretical, but you'll see consistencies. And I kept, started to see, and I literally created a whole anxiety course around this. But I started to see consistencies that were everywhere from different backgrounds, different, like I started looking at the different backgrounds and different psychologies and I started to see consistencies. And I said, I'm going to take the consistencies because the studier mind 
And the teacher person that I am, I was able to do that and correlate it and take notes. You should like, this is, that was literally like a study. And because that was do or die for me when I did this. And anyway, I would do that and take what would, and, and apply it and what would feel like, yeah, I, I believe this will help. This makes logical sense. And I would apply it and try it and do it from that perspective. A lot of it was my gut. But a lot of it was cross comparing and consistencies and people who are recognized and what they said. And when I saw the actual hard and fast, you know, people who've been through nervous breakdowns, like um, the book's called something to do with your nerves. I can't even remember. It's an old book, very old book. But when I started to read it and find the consistencies and see the case studies, I was able to go, yeah, that looks like it works, you know, as in real hard and fast cases. I've heard this kind of used before. I'm going to apply that. And that's how I would do it. I would, it was building, that's why it took so, to so long, two years, a long time, but it t- took ye- days, every single day I'd be doing that every single day, trying to work as well, but every single day I'd be doing that and seven days a week. And I would go all in it. And, and it did literally open up my mind. And um, to this day, I work with, for example, there's um, a psychiatric um, doctor who will send clients to me who don't want to go on medication to work with them. You know what I mean? And it's, it's fascinating, but, they know my story and they've seen me work with other clients and they've seen that it works, but my way is not going to suit everybody. I will say that too. Everyone's different. So there, yes, you can take some common, you know, systems, so to speak strategies, but you have to sometimes apply them to your own. But one of the biggest things that I saw was this, and I didn't get taught this in school, separating, I said already earlier on, but separating your head from your heart. And I'm thinking this, but what do I want? Do I agree with this thought? And asking those kind of questions, this is freaking me out. Do you agree with that thought? Yes or no? Is it coming from you? Yes or no? Is it what you want? Yes or no? And I started to take that approach as if separate my head from my heart, as if I was coaching a client, and that was my approach. I'm sorry if that's a long answer, but that's no. But I think it, I, I can relate to it because I remember there was one audio book that I was recommended. I'm generally sometimes a little bit skeptical to recommend books because I do believe you have to be in the headspace for a particular book to hit you at a certain time because there's books I have downstairs that you're kind of reading you're kind of like this this isn't hitting home for whatever reason then you kind of go back to it maybe a year or two later and you're like Jesus Christ this is actually yeah. hitting home like I read Victor Frankl at the beginning of the first lockdown mm, okay okay so like talk about captivity I'm not comparing lockdown to what uh, no I know but there's definitely you can get it it's like. overlap uh, but one of the books that hit me was a book called Loving What Is by Katie Byron Mm. and if you listen to an audiobook, it's a better journey for you because she's at like her seminar or conference or whatever and she'll get people out of the audience to go through their stories and one of the things that kind of like can irritate people about other people is that like i don't know they have this like tick where they're they say certain things or they make comments about people and one of the massive things that she talks about is that like generally if that person has done something it's generally that's it's actually something that we do already and it's projecting onto that person yeah so you notice it with parents in particular yeah, you're absolutely. like i am my dad this is worrying yeah 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 <laughs> it, 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 it it's an interesting book i would probably i've, I've recommended to a few clients they're like holy fuck why haven't i read this sooner yeah and i do believe you have to be at a certain point for that and i agree i agree i read i tell you where I was more interested in the real stories as a, as a, as opposed to someone say, Oh, here's 10 tips to get over anxiety that I wouldn't read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was more interested in, uh, Oh, I had an nervous breakdown. Here's how I got through it. Um, I'd more picked that apart. And I read a story about a woman in America. She's a motivational speaker now, but, um, Joyce Myers is her name. And she spoke about how she was abused 
uh, raped by her father. It's very she talks about this all the time. She was abused and raped by her father for years, and how her mind became like it was my. She started thinking it was my fault and all of this stuff. And that story struck with me because she wrote numerous books. But um, one of the books I read was called Battlefield of the Minds. That's what it's called. And I'm like, this seems fascinating. And I took it away on holiday with me. I remember I said, I, I, I have to read this book. And this was at the time I was kind of on the latter half of coming through things. And I saw how she got through it and how she separated her head from, you know, her, her thoughts were not her own. And she recognized that and so forth. And I got like elements from that book as well that I would couple say with other stuff that I picked up along the way and then just learning the tools that worked for me but that book I remember going if she can be and she I mean now she's a happy person I was listening to her I kind of was like well, who is this person she's from Texas real American but I remember going that's amazing and then through other stories of people who've gone through horrible depravity things but yet came out to the other side and were, and were happy and content for the most part I'm like that's what I need to learn that's what I want to learn from people who've been there done that and those were the stories I would have zoned in a lot on. Um, and you do over time, I think for me was I would sometimes apply things like, so your thoughts are not your own and reading that one thing in that one book about, you know, your brain will show you what you do, whether you want to think about something, yes or no, it doesn't matter, but it'll show you the image of that thing. That was like, even at the time, I was like, yeah, don't take your thoughts so seriously. Is it fact or fiction and, and things like that? But going back to, well, what do I want? And are these thoughts what I want? And go, no, they're not. And so that proves that my thoughts are not always my own. And I remember that was a big epiphany that day I discovered that because I went, I'm thinking stuff I don't want to think. I'm thinking fearful thoughts I don't want to think. And I remember going, if my thoughts were all my own, I'd never have a nightmare because who would want to do that to themselves if you get me? And I re- and that's how the penny dropped. Your thoughts can just be any thoughts. Mm. And that was a like a step. And then obviously there was many more steps, but that's kind of how it would come together. Just, step, yeah. Yeah. Um, in relation to when people are kind of like, when they're talking about kind of like the head versus heart and they're not sure if their own thoughts are their own or whatever it may be, is that linked to kind of what they truly value? And if it is, do you believe enough people are living by their values or are they living by what society in inverted commas or other people are expecting of them? Yeah, I'm going to say it. that's a great question, Shane. I, here's the thing. A lot of people think they know what they should value because society has said, this is what you value or parents, even this is what you need to be. This is the, you know, you need to go to college. You need to be a doctor or whatever it might be. Right. And you're living according to someone else's projection of values. Okay. Um, and sometimes parents will try to live the life that they didn't live through their kids. That happens too, or whatever, or society says, this is what the, you know, quid pro quo is. And this is where you need to be at. A lot of people are living on what they believe are the values, but what the real values are when you get down to it, the nuts and bolts of it, some of us don't even know what our real values are. We've just lived according to a manual, um, you know, or, or, or what's out there, social media, et cetera. But a lot of us need to go back to what our real values are. And sometimes in life, if you go through a difficult time, say like I did, or you've alluded to with yourself or whatever, but when you go through challenges, you sometimes that's when you discover what your real values are. Um, but the trick is you want to get to that place without having to go to a dark place to find it. Yeah, that's the, that's the fine line. It's kind of, I, I, I don't want, I, I don't think from my own experience, I never want to go back there ever again, mm. but I'm also appreciative of actually having been there because mm. it actually makes you celebrate the things that are important to you. And it made me realize like, right, 
I don't want to work in a corporate world. I don't want to work a nine to five job. I actually want to go and help people to make a difference. I want to be self-employed. Is it all hunky-dory and butterflies and rainbows being self-employed? No. No, Absolutely not. It is not, no. But it's important that like, it's challenging me to say, right, what's actually going on? What can I do for myself here? And it kind of is taking a step back, right? Is it something I'm doing wrong? Is it something else that's going on external? Am I just blaming things? Or am I actually... When you're especially when you're putting out a message, it's kind of like, right, is this am I just saying this to be fucking get traction? Yeah. Like, perfect example would be the Kim, Kim K dress. Yeah. I put out something on that and you were getting loads of comments back. And I, I potentially wasn't prepared for it because I was like, This is what I thought in my head, but I don't think this is what I actually believe. Yeah. I put it out and I was like, I wasn't prepared for the backlash afterwards. Yeah. I th- I think there is uh interesting on that. Do you remember the old story I remember here in school called The Emperor's Clothing? Do you yeah. remember that story? You know, yeah. and it's 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 a finest silk, and he and then someone goes, but he's nothing on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I always remember that story, and I think we're sold a lot of emperor's clothing scenarios of like, no, this is, if they wear it, it's gorgeous. And you look at it and go, Well, really now, if that was someone else wearing that, or you know, I'm not using the clothing to get into that, but I'm saying we're sold a lot of ideas because of people of influence selling it to us, and that could be society that could be online that could be people of influence can be our teacher our parents or whatever or even our college you know stands for we need to be this if you come from this college there's lots of things selling pushing their values all the time but we got to be be careful it's well does this actually what we want and a lot of the time when i'm coaching never not just even a business you know like i work with say uh, companies and different so forth and they bring me in as like you know getting company values and whatever else and I'll sometimes say, you know, is this really what you want, though? Do you want to be positioned in, in the marketplace? But I'll ask the same question when I'm working with someone on a personal level on a one-to-one. What do you want? What is your, when you see L-I-F-E, what is it that makes you go, yeah, now I smile. That makes me happy. That's what I want to build my life on, be, become my life. Sometimes people will say, oh, look, my life is living on a beach and drinking pina coladas and whatever else. And I'm saying, well, if you do that for long enough, that actually will actually be bad for you because you're going to lose put it this way we're not built to do nothing so if you're built to do something we'll find out what it is but i ask what is it you want and that's what you got to lean into forget what society says you see i suppose when i what i went through that breakdown i stopped caring what people think or thought or whatever else i just kind of said you know what i'm going all in on what i like to do and if it sink or swim that's what i'm going all in on as far as my my future and whatever else and I just stopped. And then I went on online and you always want to get people comment and stuff and whatever else. And I just don't care. I honestly just don't care. Like, you know, uh, because it's, I'm not here to look, I, I, I'm looking for constructive feedback and criticism. And I, I, I'm open to both sides. I'm very like that. I don't, I don't want to hear, oh, that was great. I want to hear good and bad, but it won't get into me because I suppose what I've realized is it's not going to stop me doing what I'm doing. You know, I want to hear what people like and not like, and I'll take the meat and leave the bones, but it's not going to stop me doing what I'm doing because I love what I do. And I'll ask clients, like, what do you want? And are you living according to that? Because sadly, a lot of us realize that we retire from a job at 65 and then we realize, what's the purpose of me? What am I all about? Because their job became their identity. Your job is something you do. um, It's not who you are. And I think we need to understand that there's a lot more to us than what we do 50, 60 hours a week. There's what, what is it? Where are we going? What's the long, the long game, you know, what's the long game. Um, and I think I gave that to a lot of people. How do you decipher for yourself though? Because 
your name is in your business on Instagram, if you know what I mean. So like Mark Fennell is the business, is the brand. Yeah. yeah. How do you decipher between Mark Fennell, a husband, son, and Mark Fennell, the businessman? How do I decipher it? You see, well, it's, I mean, there's boundaries. There's, you know, there's time allocations, if I put it like that. What I mean by that is I'm, I'm not like 90 hours of my business in a week. I've got, yeah. I, I work on balance. I never always get it perfect. Absolutely not human, chair. But I try and have, I mean, when it comes to balance, I try and have a balance, a separation, boundaries. You know, when we're chatting at dinner or whatever else, the phone is down and off and that kind of stuff. So from a practical side, that's how I approach that. But I suppose the person I am on, say, the Instagram and the person I am on off Instagram or wherever you want to call it, I'm kind of the same person, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is I do what I do because I love what I do. And whether I'm employed to do it or whether I'm doing something that's just purely for the doing of it and there's no you know profit attached to whatever else, it's a labor of love. So um, the only struggle I found to separate the two was just getting the boundaries in and saying, I can't be always active, always on emails or always, if that, is that answering your question? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So I mean, but why are people so reluctant to bring in boundaries? Why are people? People don't are reluctant to bring in boundaries for the simple reason their job gives them that sense of purpose and their purpose is like, the job is is it be, the job becomes their god essentially, and I think the mistake we make is that the job is something you do; it's not who you are. And I love what I do, but I also have discovered other things I love to do. And before I had a breakdown, I was all in on the job, all in on the career. I wasn't doing other stuff like hobbies or really anything like that. But I I discovered that there's so much, there is more to life than your job and and i don't i mean look i'm gonna sound so cheesy but i don't see what i do like a job because it is a genuinely labor love i do love it i love helping people the reward as i said the reward i get from that is, is what helps but why are people reluctant i think people have let their jobs or their career become their who they are and define them i think that's a big issue for people you know i work at this that's who i am well you take away the uniform you take away the credential who are you and that's when i work with coaching on people i'll go through every aspect of their life career is just on one of them aspects, but there could be 12, 11 other aspects. And we will look at and see how satisfied are you in life? And a lot of people say, oh, I'm great in the job, but the other areas are suffering or struggling. It's like the person who wakes up and they're 35 going, I've no relationship. I've nothing. I've just got an amazing career. And they're like, oh my God, there's more to life than that. Have you read the status game by Will Store? No, haven't. And I read a lot of books. I can't believe you've made two books I've not read. Go on. <laughs> I found them. Uh, yeah. So Will Store has two amazing books called Selfie. Well, he has more of them, two books, but the main ones I've read anyway are Selfie and, and uh, The Status Game. And The Status Game is ultimately what you said there about kind of people getting identified as that they're, that they're their job. And he alludes to that the main reason that we kind of do that is because we want that kind of like connection or we want that kind of like reward from other people and that kind of status thing that we build up it's like i i need to be at a certain level i need to have a certain car i need to have a certain house i need to have a certain marriage or a certain amount of kids yeah. in order to fit into a status quo and that comes from loads of different things in like societal nor like roman times egyptian times all that kind of shit but the biggest thing is he talks about it's like well have you ever looked at anyone that has it all yeah and you're kind of like no so why are we still projecting why are we still going for that and and I'm going to share with you on that one. For me and my wife, we're married a long time and we wanted kids. So I'm not talking about, I have a genuine 
answer, like when I'm talking about this particular thing, it's for my own personal reasons as well. We wanted kids, went all in on trying to have kids and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't to be. And society would say, oh, if you can't have kids, you know, what, what? it's like, I suppose society would say you get married and have kids. And we were like, we got married, but no kids. Oh, people don't talk about that enough. And so there was lots of things that goes as a man, you know, like what kind of kids, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll never walk a uh, daughter down the aisle or I'll never teach a son football, you know, and that kind of thing. And I, as, as people say, that's really sad. And, and yeah, it's sad, but I'm going to come at it like this. Did it get me depressed? No, it didn't. Because I said, I'll never attach happiness to something that may or may, that's, that may or may not happen because I'm taking my power away and putting it onto something that may or may not happen. And if I said, oh, I'll be so happy when I have kids, of course I'd be happy if I had kids, but I can also be happy if I don't have kids. And I had to kind of figure out and reevaluate because you kind of see married, house, kids. And I had to say, well, I'm married and house, but no kids. And I said, so where do I fit in in society? Because when all my friends are having kids and, you know, and I'm godfather and, my siblings are having kids and people are younger than me having kids. And where do I fit in now? I'm not at the school gates or where do I fit in? And I had to say, do you know what? It's, it's, a, it's an analogy used quite a lot, but I, I use it quite a lot. It's you find your lane and you make it a happy place. There'll be people who have, it's like your car driving in the M50. There'll be cars going faster than you, nicer than yours. There'll be cars going slower than yours. I don't know other people's life, but all I know is I have my life. And I know what I do. And there's things I wanted in life that never happened. But you know what? There's things that I never thought I'd have that I do have. And I'm going to say, do you know what? I can focus on what I don't have, or I can be bloody grateful for what I do have and go all in on that. And society could, if I let it, and this is how I interpret it, society would clearly tell you, if you can't have kids, you're going to be grieving for, for life. And I've never heard someone say, and there is a grief when you can't have kids. Like there is that grieving process. But People would say that it's forever and, you know, you'll be grieving for the rest of your life. And I said, like, I'm not going to grieve the loss of something I never had. And I'm not going to let it take my happiness for the rest of my life. And what I mean by that is I have Viktor Frankl here. I have a choice here. Do I let what I don't have sadden me for my life or do I just go, you know, what? I'm just grateful for what I do have. And that's like I said at the very earlier on in the conversation, you know what? It sounds, you know, if I if I can get up in the morning and go about doing what I like to do most days enjoy, and enjoy it for most days, I, I'm it's a win for me. And I'm happy out. And forget comparing myself to the person who has five kids or the person who has the mansion, 10 cars, six dogs, and you know, whatever amount of kids. Stop comparing. Because I, if I, when I compare, I'll always find something to be unhappy about. So what do I do now? I don't bother. I, it, it can easily creep in. I'm human. We all do it. Like, you know, you compare, oh, man, I wish I had that. Or I wish I, but I had to learn because of that, a very significant thing in my life that wasn't happening for us with kids. I had to learn, do you know what, Mark, if you compare, you're going to be unhappy. The, oh, what am I going to compare to? I'm only going to compare with the person I was last week, last year. And when I compare with who I was 15 years ago during the breakdown, I've come a very long way. And I'm happy with that. And hopefully I'm not in the same place in 10 years time. And I've gone, moved on somewhere a bit further in life or whatever else, as far as growth or whatever. But my point is, we just learn to go all in on what I have 
Be grateful for the bit you have. It's not about being the best. It's just about doing your best. There'll always be people better than you. There'll always be people worse than you. More wealthy, less wealthy, whatever else. People say, you know, I, I've picked a career that not you may not make the millions in, but, you know, I says, that's not the point. I want to be able to kind of like when I hit the 65-year-old mark one day or whatever the age is, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to say, are you happy doing what you're doing? Great. Are you happy out? Are you healthy? Grand. I'll take that. And that's the thing. I know we're going to talk about comparison, but that's kind of how I had to learn. If I compare it to people who have kids and I don't, I'm going to get very, that's depressive. But I said, you know what? I'm just going to learn to be happy with what I have. Stay in my lane. That was my answer. That's an amazing story. And thank you for sharing that, by the way. Mm. Um, And I I think that's an amazing way to kind of like, finish up about appreciating what you have not I'm comparing it to the person that you were yesterday to compare the person you were a week ago compared to the person you were a year ago mm. I think it's an amazing sentiment I think too many people are like chase things and I think we've all been there I think it, it can be hard to get it right all the time we're human yeah. as, you, as you've said a million times on this yeah. but, it is, but it's the biggest thing it's like you can't be perfect you can't be godlike that's exactly what perfection is it's godlike and we're not godlike we're human no and we, we think perfect exists nothing's yeah. perfect I remember seeing a guy put up this amazing piece of art one time it was a TED talk and he said it was it was in here in Dublin and he put this piece of art up and he says isn't this beautiful look at the curves look at the art isn't it amazing and then he 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 uh, turned the light off on it and he said now look at the same piece of art he says it's just a bit of metal in a cool piece of, it was a metal kind of shape thing he says it's just a bit of metal at the end of the day have you not seen stuff like this wash up on the beach and he totally like flicked your mindset going, yeah, it's actually not that dumb. You know, is it actually good? And then you start going, is it actually good? Is it actually art? Or is it just a piece of rubbish? Hung on? And he, he started to do that with you. And he said, this is how we can be primed. If I put a frame on something and a light on something and say, it's art, we're conditioned. It's beautiful. It's expensive. But he said, if I turn the lights off, take the frame off, it's just a bit of metal. It doesn't look like art anymore. And he said, how it's subjective. And I think that's the problem we have with status. We, we, we kind of go, oh, that must be what I do to fit in because we're social creatures. That must be what needs to be. And I remember working with a guy, he was um, a pilot and he said, oh, I, I love, you know, this outfit. And it, it, he was all, he loved being a pilot and it got down to being when he had the cap on and he had, he was a pilot, like, and he was wearing the, the, the suit and so to speak, the uniform. And I says, when you're a pilot, people are looking at what the suit represents, the uniform represents, but it's not you they're looking at. It's, it could be any other body in that uniform. They just see that uniform in the airport going, oh, cool, he's a pilot. But it's not you, you know? I said, the uniform represents something, but you not in that uniform and in your tracksuit at home, that's you. So he goes, you know what? I've attached my identity to what that uniform represents. He says, and I'm living my life to uphold that image. But he said, really, take the uniform. I said, what I came down to is take the uniform, forget the uniform. Who are you? What do you do? You fly plane. What else do you do? And he realized, I never thought like that. I was all about the uniform because what the uniform represented to people. But the uniform is not me. It's just something I wear and something, I, again, something I do. It's not who I am. I love that. I think a lot of people are going to resonate with this episode. I genuinely think that it's gone completely different segues that we had planned. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different. But I think it's, I think I, I genuinely prefer these kind of conversations because like if you say something I'll be like all right that's triggered something to me is like let's try and dissect this and listen to the audience and see what they mm-hmm. actually actually have an open chat because sometimes the chats can be too organized 
Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we totally free balled it here today, but it was really enjoyable. No, I loved it. Uh, you've got a stress and overwhelm course coming out. Yes, yeah, stress and overwhelm course coming out. Um, it's a workshop I did. It's like 80 minutes and it's just to kind of help people deal with stress and overwhelm. But it's like anything I do, it's practical. Um, and I would say, look, I have a lot of those resources. I do monthly coaching and stuff like that. And then obviously one to ones, you know, there's lots on there. Connect with me on Instagram. If people say, how do I get in touch? Well, connect on Instagram, markfennel.ie or the website, which is markfennel.ie. Um, and there's stuff there. There's, there's free content there and resources and so forth. The point is, though, if you're in a place going, I always say the quote on my website says, build a life that makes you smile. You know, and that's my, I live by that because that's one thing I had to learn. I got my smile back. And I, I say to someone, if your life, we're not saying no one's life is perfect. Then every day, you're not going to be loving life every morning, waking up with the, the birds singing, right? That's not life. But what I say is, for the most part, does your life make you smile? And if someone says, no, it doesn't really. Well, then I say, well, then you're cutting yourself, you're selling yourself short. You deserve to have a life that makes you smile because I believe every person is an individual and is, is alive for such a time as this. So, you know, build that life that makes you smile. That's my ethos. <laughs> Keep it no, simple. It, that's epic so thank you like mark that's incredible and i, and I there's so many i've got like a full a4 pad of notes here so uh i know okay. clients are going to be uh, asking questions on the back of it so thank you so much for coming on mark and thank you so much for sharing that amazing story towards the end and thanks for having me